Bibles up to Mark chapter 11. I am happy to be back in the Gospel of Mark uh, today and over the next few weeks for sure. I love this book, love the Gospels. uh, Mark chapter 11 today. You can see there probably on the the title uh, of your of chapter 11, it probably says something like the triumphal entry at the top. Entrances matter. Um, over the centuries, different war heroes or rulers have made symbolic and dramatic entrances into cities. Uh, that is certainly not uncommon. In ancient Rome, the re-entry of a military general into the city was called a triumph. Um, they would come back in after winning a great victory with their army, and the general would be decked out in a purple toga that was gold embroidered. I thought about wearing one this morning to demonstrate that, but decided against it. But they'd be decked out in this very uh, stately outfit, and they would ride their chariot into the city, accompanied by his army, and he would have his captives in chains following along and showing the, the victory that he had won, and it was a, a time of celebration and a very symbolic and dramatic entrance into the city. And then over the years in the Middle Ages, this sort of thing continued, and different rulers would enter into the city that they were going to reign from or rule over, and they would come in, and there would be a series of festivals and ceremonies, there'd be a great feast. Um, and the ruler was often carried into the city, and the, uh, the kind of rulers of the city, the, the officials there, the authorities would greet that ruler who was coming into the city from which to reign, and they would pay him homage and honor him. And it was a significant time. It was a symbolic time of importance. And it's funny because you can even see that mindset today in different ways all throughout our culture. Um, entrances are important, and symbolic entrances matter. If, if you watch football, you see different entrances of teams into the stadium, and uh, you can find lists online of the, the best entrances in college football, the most dramatic way for the team to enter the stadium. And if you really think about it, particularly in football, the entrance doesn't really accomplish all that much, right? I mean, in most cases, the team has actually already been in the stadium and they've already been practicing and they leave the stadium in order to come back in in this dramatic fashion. And they do that because it's symbolic and it represents something and it it really sets the stage for what is about to happen. It gets them hyped up, it gets the crowd hyped up, and they're, they're more ready to play at that point. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus's entry into the city of Jerusalem. And it's interesting because this is not the first time in his life. Now, they're not covered in the Gospel of Mark, but this is not the first time in his life he's been in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, But this entrance is unique. It's special for a number of reasons. And as we think about this entrance, we need to pay attention to those reasons as to why it is important and why it's significant. So as you think about that, keep in mind where we are at in the Gospel of Mark. I know it's been a couple of months since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, but just to sort of remind you, big picture, where we're at so that you can understand why this is so significant. Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, where he preached the gospel of the kingdom, 
He told people the good news of God's rule and reign. His reign was coming through Jesus, through his ministry. He preached that good news. And then he did miracles that demonstrated the arrival of that kingdom. They enacted the kingdom. The kingdom would be a place of healing and of victory over the powers of darkness. And Jesus did all of that. And then he took his disciples in the middle of the gospel. In chapter 8, he took his disciples up north of Israel to Caesarea. And there he asked them about who they thought he was. And just to show you a map, you can see that top arrow there is Caesarea. And so he took them up there, and there was that whole interaction with Peter about who Jesus was. And he took them to Caesarea, and then he began this journey that goes from chapter 8, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 10 and into our chapter today in chapter 11. And it was a physical journey of going from that northern arrow down to that southern arrow there, which is Jerusalem. It was a physical journey, but it was also a spiritual journey. And in those chapters, if you remember, Jesus is teaching the disciples what the journey of discipleship looks like. What does it mean for you to follow me to Jerusalem and to the place of my death? And what does that look like for you? What are the implications of your life as a follower of me? And that's what he taught them. And so last time, We were in Mark, we saw this little story at the end of chapter 10, where Jesus heals Bartimaeus, the blind man, and he does that in Jericho. And if you know anything about the geography of Israel, Jericho is across the Jordan River on the Jerusalem side, and it's not that far from Jerusalem. It's really only a day's walk from Jerusalem. And so then you get into chapter 11, And we read these words, look there with me. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem. So everything has really been leading to this point. Everything in chapters 8 through 10, and really everything before that, honestly. But in this this journey, these chapters of journey, of teaching on discipleship, everything has led and pointed to this point when Jesus would come to the city of Jerusalem for the final time at least the final time of his first advent. And he comes there, and that's why we're going to call this series The City and the King. He enters Jerusalem here in dramatic fashion, and this kicks off the final week of his life. And the last chapters of Mark, all the way through chapter 16, are going to cover one week, just a few days in the life of Jesus. So the the gospel writer zeroes in on this time frame, and it's really significant uh, for the message that he's presenting. And so this entrance today, this is not just a geographical relocating of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. It's not just like, and he came to Jerusalem. This entrance is described in detail, and it's described so that we will understand the importance and the significance of what happens here. It's full of symbolism, and I'm going to show you that as we walk through it. And you and I are meant to read this story as a proclamation. Jesus is saying something by what he does here, not just entering. The way that he arrives in Jerusalem presents him as its rightful king. He's the authority. He's the owner. He's the one that has the right to the city and to the temple in it. And so as we study this today, we're going to see two demonstrations of Jesus's status as king. That's really what what Mark is presenting here. So two demonstrations of Jesus's status as king. 
The first one of these is found in verses 1 to 6, and this is his intentional authority. Look with me at verse 1 again. You're going to see intentionality, purposefulness throughout these verses. Verse 1, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So Bethpage and Bethany are both little villages or almost even settlements that are a little bit outside of Jerusalem, and they're on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and they're, they're not far at all from the city. It's interesting here that as they're coming along this road, Mark draws attention to the fact that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, why does he do that? Well, in the Old Testament in Jerusalem, the temple was the center of the city. It was the most important part of the center of the city. It was the center of religious life in Israel, and the glory of the Lord dwelt in the temple. You know that. Now, what's interesting here is that in the book of Ezekiel, when the people are under God's judgment for their consistent unfaithfulness and their idolatry and their sin, they had sinned so badly that the glory of the Lord actually departs from Jerusalem. And Ezekiel tells us that the glory of the Lord goes out the east gate and goes up onto the Mount of Olives and waits there and rests there and departs the city. And so I think Mark draws our attention here because the Jews thought of the Mount of Olives as having messianic significance, and it was the last place that the glory of the Lord was as it left, as he left the city. And it makes sense here that God would return to his city by the Mount of Olives and come in in this way. So they're approaching these little settlements, and at the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples. Look at verses 2 and 3. End of verse 1, actually. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, you've heard this story so many times. It's a great children's story, so everyone's got this. They've heard this a number of times. But think about how odd (laughs) this is what Jesus does here. They're approaching the city of Jerusalem, and remember, this is for Passover week, okay? So this is not just any other week in the Jewish calendar. This is the beginning of Passover week, and so they were certainly not the only ones on the road to Jerusalem. In fact, the road would have been filled with pilgrims who were going to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover week. Huge crowds would have been on the same journey with Jesus and with the disciples. But here's the thing about all of these pilgrims. When you made a journey to Jerusalem, it was understood that you would walk into the city as a pilgrim. That's what everyone did. You were not supposed to ride an animal into the city for Passover. What animal does Jesus choose? Well, the ESV here is... Your Bible probably says, says colt, but it's most likely a donkey here. And this is not accidental that he chooses this particular animal to ride into the city. You've probably heard this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Now, I think there's no doubt, based on Matthew and Luke, that Jesus has this prophecy, expectation of the Messiah in mind when he's coming into the city, but Mark doesn't mention it. And Mark doesn't mention it, I think, because he doesn't want us to think of riding on a donkey as something that we think of riding on a donkey as, as something very, very humiliating. Who wants to ride a donkey? We think of transportation for a king as being a horse, a majestic steed, but that was not the case during this time. It was actually a very kingly, appropriate mode of transportation for a king to ride a donkey rather than a horse. Old Testament kings rode donkeys. And so think about the scene here with no one else on the road riding an animal, and Jesus calls for and receives a donkey and gets on that donkey and rides it into the city. That would have made a significant statement. But notice what else he says about this donkey here in verse 2. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. And Jesus says that intentionally and specifically because no one else was allowed to ride on the king's animal. So it's important for him to say this and and make this observation here. Also notice how he obtains the animal. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. What kind of a person just claims the right to this animal? One author said that this was a royal requisition formula. This is the king telling his subjects that he has need of something and claiming a right to it. This is what the king does. Jesus uses the title Lord here for himself. And no doubt the people that, were, uh, that had the donkey and questioned the disciples, they're probably not thinking Lord in the sense that you and I are. They're probably thinking something like master, but It's intentional that Jesus says the Lord has need of this here. He applies that language to himself. So all of this is purposeful, and all of it is intentional, and he intends to present himself as the king, riding a kingly animal that no one has ever sat on into the holy city. So what happens? Verses 4 to 6. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It happens exactly as Jesus said it would, and so now he has possession of this donkey, and he intends to ride it into the city. He doesn't ride it into the city because he's tired from a long walk from Jericho. He's not being haphazard here. He's being intentionally authoritative, and he's arranging all of this to make a statement and to present himself to the city as its king. He is God's Messiah, the promised one coming to the holy city, and he's the rightful king. Now, the whole rest of this section versus really the whole rest of the book, We are to read the whole rest of the book, I think, in light of what happens here in the sense of Jesus is in complete control of all of this. He is not just a rabbi who has been teaching, who is caught up in the political machinations of everything that's happening at this time in Jerusalem, the conflict between the Romans and the Jews. That is not what's going on here. He is not caught up in something that is out of his control. 
I think he shows us by this in a small way, but a significant way, that he is in complete control of the circumstances that are happening here. And we are to read the rest of the book as Jesus being in complete control of everything that happens. He's not caught by surprise. John chapter 10, listen to this. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Do you notice an emphasis there? Jesus comes into the city here and presents himself as the king, and he is the authoritative king in complete control, and that control leads him to sacrifice his life for his sheep. He does it purposefully and intentionally. Now, as he begins to do this, and as this whole situation is arranged, the Mount of Olives, and they're coming into the city, apparently... The people, the pilgrims who are on the road with him, they start to understand what's taking place. They see the the symbolic action of Jesus, and they're getting at least some grasp of what he is saying. And you can see that in the rest of this section, verses 7 through 11. And this brings us to our second demonstration of Jesus' status as king. He's intentional, he has authority, he also, his prophetic fulfillment demonstrates that he is king. So he has the donkey, he has procured it, and the scene continues to unfold, and nearly everything that happens in this passage presents Jesus as the king. Look at verse 7. And they, probably his disciples, brought the colt to Jesus. I say probably his disciples, the ones that threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Even this action presents him as the king. I mean, Surely the the donkey didn't have a saddle on it, so there may be a temptation to think that they're just covering up its back to make this more comfortable for Jesus. But in the Old Testament, when Jehu is enthroned as king, they do this exact same thing. So this would have been an action that would have been appropriate for royalty, and it continues in verse 8. Look there. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This becomes a royal procession on the road to Jerusalem. So just kind of take a step back. Keep in mind the whole scene here because this is important for understanding what happens next, okay? So this whole thing, Jesus and his disciples were making this journey. They go through Jericho and they're with crowds of people in Jericho. Look back up at chapter 10 and verse 46, okay? Trying to paint the picture for you here. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, all right? So there's a huge mass of people, and while he's leaving Jericho, he heals this blind man, Bartimaeus, but keep in mind what Bartimaeus shouts out about Jesus, okay? Remember this, verse 47, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Twice, Mark makes sure to highlight 
as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, this title, Son of David. That's important. Bartimaeus may not have understood all the implications and all the details, but what he does say is Jesus is the heir of David, and David is the greatest king that Israel ever had, and God made an eternal covenant with David, and the line of David is the line through which Messiah would come. And after that proclamation, Jesus heals this man who has been blind in a dramatic miracle, and after that happened, do you think those crowds just sort of melted away? I wonder what's for lunch. No, there's no way they melted away. And Bartimaeus himself joins the procession after proclaiming Jesus as the son of David. Look at verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The way where? To Jerusalem. Everyone's on this road with him. So now... Jesus is presenting himself in a kingly manner on the road to Jerusalem. The people have just heard Bartimaeus shout that he's the son of David, and then they've watched him give this man sight, and now he's riding on a donkey, which is a kingly animal, toward the city of David, Jerusalem. And with the Old Testament background that the Jews no doubt knew of Zechariah chapter 9, maybe that's ringing in their ears. This whole royal procession is taking place, and the people, in response to that, begin to shout. And what do they shout? Look at verse 9, 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed, you can sort of get this picture of just a mass of humanity moving. There are people all around him as he's mounted on this donkey. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So what are the people saying here? Well, these are not just random phrases that they pull out of the air, okay? Maybe your Bible has a little note in the margin, but these phrases are taken from Psalm 118, and they are applied to Jesus. There's a reason that they're saying these things here. Why? Why are they taking these phrases from Psalm 118 And why are they announcing them about Jesus? I need to show you why they're doing that. So flip back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, turn over there. Hold your finger in Mark. We'll go back there. Psalm 118. So I told you at the beginning, entrances matter. All right? Entrances matter. And... A Roman general would enter a city after winning a great victory, and the people would be celebrating. And often, as that general was entering the city, people would be chanting things about that general. Maybe even the general himself would be proclaiming something, singing a song. That sort of song or chant is exactly what Psalm 118 is. Okay? One author said that this is a royal song of thanksgiving for military victory, okay? So if you are a conquering hero, and as you're entering, you would sing this. This would be appropriate for you to proclaim and to sing. Look at verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love 
endures forever. Now look down at verse 10. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Now, this language of being surrounded by enemies gives you the picture of a war being fought. And this language of God helping this person makes us think that this was intended to be sung by a Davidic king. When a Davidic king went out in the Old Testament and won a victory and came back to the city, this was what that Davidic king would sing and proclaim. And so as he approaches the city, in his military victory procession, he hears the songs of the people waiting in the city, welcoming him. Look at verse 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So the people, he hears this, that the people are proclaiming this as he approaches the city. And as he comes to the city, he wants to get to the heart of the city, which is the temple. Because he wants to thank God for the victory. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The temple is the ultimate goal. That's where he wants to end up because of the victory that has been won. And once he is inside, now the crowd joins in praising God. And you can see that it changes from this one individual speaking to now everyone is joining together. Look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You can see the change there to plural. Now the crowd is joining with him in proclaiming God's goodness. Verse 25, this is what's quoted in the New Testament in Mark 11. Save us, that's Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then the priests respond to that in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the priests praise the king for his military victory. And so the crowds pull their language from verses 25 and 26 in Psalm 118. Let's go back over to Mark and look again. So why do they chant these words here? They're watching the events unfold with Jesus' victory over the powers of darkness. He consistently casts out demon. He heals diseases. And now he's riding into the city of David on a donkey, as the king would, and they're proclaiming these words from that song because these words fit perfectly with what is happening. Notice what they say in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. I mean, they're hoping against hope that this might be the installation of God's promised Davidic king for all of eternity. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking maybe, just maybe, God will reestablish Israel and the Roman oppressors will be thrown out of the land and they don't really fully understand how this is going to work. 
but they at least understand Jesus, and he's presenting himself as the Davidic king. Now, in any other procession into a city of a military leader or of a ruler, what would happen at this point? The authorities of the city would come out to greet the conquering hero as he's entering the city, and they would pay him homage, and they would give him honor. What happens here? Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, which is the same place the king went in Psalm 118. And when he had looked around at everything, I love this verse. It was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's so anticlimactic, right? I mean, it's almost weird. But what it shows us is the leaders of the city are indifferent, and you can see in the other Gospels, they're actually antagonistic at this point toward Jesus and what happens here. And we'll even see that play out in the Gospel of Mark over the next few chapters. This is the beginning of the indifference and the antagonism toward Jesus and his kingly claims and what is being symbolized here. And this really sets the stage for a very serious conflict that's going to happen every single day over the next few days during this Passion Week. And at the center of this conflict is going to be the temple and the religious life of Israel and the religious leaders of Israel. And it's going to grow. This conflict is going to grow, and it's going to grow. And ultimately, Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on the temple and on its curators, those who are leading the nation at this point. But what's amazing is all of this reminds us of this passage from Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's so, and Jesus comes to bring salvation, but he also comes here to bring judgment. And you can see here in verse 11, the people do not receive him, the city does not receive him as the rightful king, and he'll bring judgment because of, because of that, among other things. So what does all this mean for us? As we read through this and we see Jesus as his intentional authority, we see his prophetic fulfillment doing all of this symbolically to present himself as king as the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. When I read all of this, I I have to think that this puts each one of us in the position to ask, what do I believe about this man, Jesus? Where do I stand in relation to him? Because if he fulfills these prophecies, if he's this king who has been promised, all of this has happened hundreds of years earlier, and he comes and he is the fulfillment of that, if he actually healed people and actually cast out demons, and if he actually rose from the dead, then you and I have to reckon with his claim on our lives. If all of that is true, then nothing is more important for us than how we relate to Jesus Christ and what we believe about him. It's not even close. Not even close. It will not do. I was listening to a podcast this week of a a very bright atheist talking about some of the issues in our country, and he is right on the money on so many things. 
but he talks about the Sermon on the Mount as some of the best moral teaching that is out there. And it is, but that will not do. That is not enough. You can't say that Jesus is a great moral teacher and then ignore these claims to be divine and to be the fulfillment of prophecy and to be the king. Both of those come with him. And if he's, if he's a good moral teacher at all, then he lied about all of these things and he presented himself as the king when he really wasn't. And so there's no way we can trust what he says about anything else. But if as you read this and you see his authority and you see his fulfillment of prophecy, if he really is who he presents himself to be, then our response to that is to humbly accept that and respond with repentance for sin and faith and trust in him. To take him at his word, to believe him, to submit to him as king and to obey him. That's where it lands. That's what we get from this, I think. And I pray that you will carefully consider those realities today. Let's pray. God, we're amazed by your word. We're amazed by Jesus and how he presents himself and the work that he did. And we're so thankful for the sacrifice that he paid for us. And I pray that you would help each one here to evaluate the claims that Jesus is making here. They're not necessarily propositional verbal claims, but he is saying here, I am the king, I am sovereign, I am to be worshipped and obeyed, and I will die at the hands of these religious leaders for your sins. Help us to consider those claims, to reckon with them in our own lives, and to respond appropriately. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray.